Uh, good to be with you all this morning. My name is Abby Odio. I'm one of the pastors here at Bethany Green Lake. Happy first day of spring. We just need to say that definitively, right? I know that means we probably have like three more months of winter weather in Seattle, but it's something. It's progress. Um, so today we continue in this series uh, for Lent that we've been in, looking at the life and the character and the way of Jesus as it's told uh, through the eyes and the lens of the book of Mark. Uh, this week, I'm sure some of you watched uh, the Ukrainian President Zelensky's virtual address to the joint session of Congress. If you didn't watch it, it's worth finding on YouTube or reading um, the transcript. But as I watched this speech, like many, I was really kind of deeply moved by the words that he said. For hours and even for days afterward, I found myself kind of thinking about it, reflecting on it. And I realized that President Zelensky wove together really a story, uh, a picture of humanity and what it looks like at its very best. He affirmed in that speech the dignity and the value of human life. He, he spoke words of courage. He spoke of loving sacrifice, all in the midst of literal like bombs dropping around him. After that speech, members from both sides of the aisle, Democrats and Republicans, all stood and clapped. And it was kind of this rare moment of unity. It was this sort of message that all of us could get behind. Now, I talk about that speech not because I want to debate foreign policy or because I have an idea about sort of the best path forward on that front. I talk about that speech because he told a story that moved people. It moved people deeply. And this highlights for us a reality that the stories we tell matter. The stories that we tell about ourselves, the stories that we tell about the people around us, our family, the stories we tell about purpose in this life and pain, it impacts us. And not just the stories that we tell, but also the stories that we submit to, that we give ourselves over to. And whether we do this knowingly or unknowingly, These stories have this sort of shaping power and influence in our lives. Our perception of self is shaped as we scroll through social media. In a way, we're giving ourselves to those stories. Our notions of safety and justice and political integrity are formed by the news and media that we absorb. I find this really interesting. In 2020, a Gallup poll found that 46% of Americans think that media is very biased, which makes sense. But a whopping 70% are concerned about the news that others are getting, right? So think about that. In other words, we're more likely to consider the stories we submit to a sort of fair and objective, but we worry that the news others are getting is forming them in kind of this problematic way. We seem to agree that stories have shaping power for better or worse, but we can carry blind spots when it comes to how that plays out for us personally, Now, I name all that to say we come to the book of Mark, and Mark is emphatic in his insistence that this person, Jesus, that this particular unique story is worthy of our life submission. It's it's the only worthy story we should give ourselves to. That unlike other stories of the, the day, the story of Roman political power, the story of religious legalism, He says, unlike those stories, this story of Jesus' life and death and resurrection, it's actually worthy of our submission. 
When we allow our lives to be shaped by it, we discover a sense of peace and and beauty and true reconciliation and wholeness that no other story can offer. This is what Mark says in, in several different ways, time and time and time again. And our text from today, from Mark chapter 6, serves as sort of a powerful invitation to this doorway, to this story. It's an invitation that we'll see as we dive in. It's kind of framed for us in three parts, and that's what we're going to look at. First is an awareness of our own story. Second is an invitation to a new memory. And then third, receiving with a softened heart. Awareness of our old story, invitation to a new memory, and receiving with a softened heart. So with all that in mind, let's jump into the passage, which first invites us to be mindful of our old story. What does that mean? Well, with this sort of fast-paced urgency that defines Mark's way of storytelling, he paints a quick picture for us of Jesus and his, of Jesus, um, Jesus's disciples directed by Jesus into a boat to cross the Sea of Galilee where they encounter an adverse wind. Now, Jesus in this moment is not in the boat. A couple chapters back in Mark chapter four, you'll remember the story where he is in the boat and he's asleep. And the disciples wake him up and he calms the storm. But here, he's not in the boat. He stays back to pray. So the disciples are alone. The theologian Walter Brueggemann sums this passage this way. He says, the entire drama of our faith And the entire truth of our lives is present in this narrative of the storm that takes only six verses to tell. In other words, most of us, if not all of us in this room, have very little difficulty connecting with this metaphor of storm or adverse wind when it comes to our own lived experience. This metaphor of wind is one we see kind of woven beautifully throughout scripture from the very beginning. In the second verse of the Bible, we see... um, Uh, that God's spirit, this Ruach wind, is hovering over the chaotic waters. And it's this wind that's present as God speaks light and flourishing into existence. We now move ahead to, to Genesis 3 when Adam and Eve eat the fruit that God commanded them not to eat. And then they hide. And immediately after that moment, we read where God is walking through the garden looking for them during that day's cool evening breeze. It's a really funny little detail kind of snuck in there. But it suggests there's this holy wind of God's spirit. And then when humanity begins placing its faith in other stories, it seems there's a new, colder, adversarial wind that blows as disorder and chaos and hiding and pain and division. See, this adversarial wind Mark talks about, it's the same old story from Genesis chapter 3. And sometimes we get caught up in this adversarial wind at no fault of our own. This is innocent children tragically living in the crossfire of war in this very moment. This is people in South Sudan who just don't have enough food to eat. This is a medical diagnosis that sort of hits us out of nowhere. And then there are other times we find ourselves up against this adversarial wind because we're chasing after it submitting to other stories like Adam and Eve, confusing it with the life of flourishing that God actually created us for. In the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes, at seven different points, the author says, we're all just chasing after the wind. That's all we're doing out here. By that, he means we're all just sort of pursuing a mirage story that seems to even lead to more pain, unfortunately. 
And the reality is whether we created the storm or were merely caught up in one by no action of our own, we can all identify with uh, this picture of being situated somewhere and straining, as Mark tells us the disciples are doing in the boat, but to no avail. They're stuck, they're, they're overwhelmed, they're tired. It's really interesting, leading up to this moment in the boat, the disciples actually assisted Jesus in the miraculous feeding of 5,000 who were out without food when they were in an isolated place. The text tells us it was 5,000 men, which means if you include women and children, there are likely 10,000 in the crowd. And with just five loaves of bread and two fish, everyone miraculously eats. Reading that story closely, we see that in Mark 6.39, Jesus directed the disciples to seat all the people in groups as though they were having a banquet on the green grass. They sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties. Now, that's a really easy detail to read over, but I point that out to say the disciples were given a pretty significant and exhausting task here. Have you ever thrown an impromptu banquet for 10,000 hangry people? I once made a wedding seating chart for 200, and let me tell you, it about did me in. Anyway, but before Jesus even dismissed this large crowd, before the disciples had a chance to really even rest, after this massive event, he puts them into the boat where they're out in the sea facing a mighty wind, a wind against them. Now, if you're like me and you read this context, it's really easy to kind of feel a sense of pity uh, for the disciples, and that's fair. It makes sense. It's bleak to be sure. But in a way, it's also not a new story for them. Over half of the disciples were fishermen, so quite literally, this picture of straining in a boat against an adversarial wind is something they'd be familiar with. It's an old story. They know the plight of weary work and long days and no rest. They know the harshness and the chaos and the unpredictability of the sea. They know the pressure, the weight of rowing all night because you are your only best hope. That was the world they occupied. It's exhausting to be sure, but this particular snapshot, it's not unfamiliar. It's really interesting to me. In Mark's account of this story, you'll notice the disciples are not actually terrified until they see Jesus walking on the waves. This particular wind, while creating havoc and maybe exhaustion, does not appear to be scaring them. See, there's something for us to chew on, this truth that the adversarial wind is hard, and we are often at home in the straining because the straining is what we know. When I was in college, I I played basketball, and during my freshman and sophomore years, I uh, played the same position as the very best player on our team. She's actually the league MVP, um, which is not really where you want to be, but it is what it is. Um, And this meant a few things for me. First and foremost, it meant I didn't play all that much. Second, it meant that when I did play, I was her substitute. So um, I generally go in a few times per game and she would get a quick break and that was that. But almost every time, my coach would tell me to check in by looking at me and sort of nodding his head and saying, don't break it. Now, I'm not sure what he actually meant by this, but what I heard for two straight years was don't break the momentum, don't screw up, just maintain until we're able to get our star back in the show. And over time, that repeated statement 
caused me to feel a fair bit of anxiety in my soul. So much so that when I go to check in, which in basketball means you, you know, you go kneel in front of the scores table till the ref calls you in. I'd go to check in and my hands would actually start to cramp. Like I'd have a mini panic attack and my hands would start to cramp. It was not fun. It was not helpful. This is not a good way to play basketball. Like you might not be familiar with the sport. This doesn't work. The first sermon I ever gave at Bethany a few years ago, I actually sat right over here. And before the 8 a.m. service, I could feel that happening in my body again. See, I share that story because it highlights the ways that our old stories run deep within us. I know that when my hands start cramping, I'm living in the old story, facing a familiar adversarial wind which says, pressure's on, don't break it. Madeline Lingle is a Christian author and poet. And in one of her books, she writes this. She says, I am still every age I have ever been because I was once a child. I'm always a child. Because I was once a searching adolescent given to moods and ecstasies, there are still parts of me that will always be. This does not mean that I ought to be trapped or enclosed at any of these ages, the delayed adolescent, the childish adult, but they are in me to be drawn on. See, this is where the disciples are facing an old story. It's a story that goes all the way back to Genesis 3. In Mark's telling of Jesus' ministry, it doesn't really paint the disciples in a romantic or sort of flattering light. It paints them, as I think it would paint any of us, in a realistic light. At the end of our text today, after all that's happened, after the disciples have seen and participated in in miracles, after they've seen Jesus walk on water and calm the storm, it says their hearts were hardened. And it's easy to scoff at that, but the truth is each of us has an old story. And oh, how effortlessly we fall back into that old story, believing that our only chance against the chaos is the old way. The old way of anger or defensiveness. The old way of deep and understandable fear that the world is not safe based in a traumatizing experience you had. The old way of falling back into relational dynamics that are harmful but familiar at least. The old way of judgment and cynicism towards other. The old way or the old story you tell about your physical body, about its value and its worth or lack thereof. It's all, it's all just rowing against an adversarial wind. My grandfather on my mom's side actually fought in World War II. He was stationed in Italy, in Northern Africa as well, but mostly in Italy. And um, we tell that part of our family story with kind of a sense of pride. But there's kind of another part of that story, which is that we don't know a lot about my grandpa's experience because it was also common knowledge that he never talked about the war. You didn't ask him about it. He didn't talk about it. But here's what I know. The war was still in him. He didn't talk about it, but he drank a lot. He didn't talk about it, but he always seemed distant from his kids. He didn't talk about it, but alcoholism was one of the key reasons my grandma ended up leaving him. Now, my grandpa wasn't a bad man, but he was stuck in an old story. He didn't talk about the war, but the war was there. Old stories stay with us. It's with him. It's with my grandma. It's with my mom as she wrestles what it means to have grown up with a dad who was largely absent. See, Jesus is doing a new thing, but part of the reason I think he actually sends the disciples into this particular adversarial wind, he tells them, get on the boat, go to the other side. He sends them into the storm. 
And part of the reason is because he's not looking to save them out of their story, but through it, in the midst of it. So acknowledgement and awareness of what that old story is actually becomes really important. So that's where we start. What's your old story? Where are you rowing, straining? That brings us to our second point this morning, which is this invitation to recognize an old story and then to bring into that story a new memory, a new memory. So Jesus sees his disciples in the struggle in their own story, and he sees them when they don't even know he's there. He's watching from the shore up on the mountain, a distance of several miles, yet he sees them. There's a beautiful and sort of comforting truth here that at every age you've ever been, at every moment in your story, Jesus has seen you. And his seeing prompts him to physically go to the disciples. Mark tells us he made his way during the fourth watch of the night. In um, the Roman world, the night was divided into four watches. And the fourth watch started at 3 a.m. And it's interesting, if you look into it, there's all sorts of like legends about the scary things that would happen during the fourth watch. It had a reputation. It was understood to be sort of the hardest, darkest, most unpredictable time. And it's at this moment that Jesus comes walking on the sea to the disciples. Now, as you heard this text read aloud this morning, uh, verse 48 may have raised some questions for you. It certainly does for me. Mark tells us he intended to pass them by. Seems a bit strange. Uh, Why would Jesus go to his struggling disciples only to pass them by? Well, this language of passing by is actually something we see elsewhere in Scripture. For instance, in the book of Exodus, a man named Moses has been called to free the Israelites from slavery and lead them from an old story to a new story. But he's sort of midway through that calling, and he's realizing it's hard, and he's scared, and the people he's been called to lead are entrenched in an old story. He's facing an adversarial win, and so he pleads with God to show up, and God does. Exodus 33, we read, God says, as my glorious presence passes by. Then we continue to 1 Kings. Another man named Elijah now has the torch of leadership. And he's leading God's people towards their new story. But he's similarly afraid and alone and ready to quit and hiding out. And God calls him in this moment saying, go and stand at the mountain before the Lord. The Lord is passing by. See, when God passed by Moses and when God passed by Elijah, he was offering them reassurance of his divine and saving presence with them. And so when Jesus intends to pass by his disciples, this is Mark's way of saying to us that God's divine and saving presence is at work here. Again, we see a nod to the Exodus story when Jesus stands there on the waters. He says to the disciples as he walks towards their boat, it's I. Literally, you could translate that I am. See, the name Jesus speaks on the water is the name that the God of the universe gave to Moses. And so as Jesus stands on the water, he's revealing something hugely important to them about his very identity. He's not just a a miracle worker or a doer of magic tricks. He's not just a revolution leader, more, more powerful than the Roman army. He's not just a healer. He is, in fact, the I am. He is the Ruach spirit of God. He is that wind that blows in the right direction. Now stay with me because this is just so rich. All of Jesus' disciples were Jewish. They were different sort of kinds of Jews, but they shared a common heritage And therefore, they'd have a memory of these stories of the heroes of the faith of Moses and Elijah. 
But then Jesus sort of changes the narrative a bit. He does something different. See, in the Old Testament stories, when God appears and passes by, that's it. It's just a glimpse, and then he disappears. But in this moment, as Mark tells the story, the God of the universe doesn't merely pass by to offer assurance. He actually physically climbs in the boat with them. The dark and weary and tossed about boat, he gets inside. It's as though he's inviting them to understand an old and treasured memory in a new way. To take an old memory about the utter power and goodness and love of the God who says, I am, I am the only one, and to place it in the present moment of the boat with them and allow it to become a new memory in their own story. Don't put your faith there. Put your faith here. See, friends, The disciples' invitation, it's our invitation too. We talk a lot about uh, discipleship at Bethany, which is just a word that means becoming like Christ in our kind of individual, unique ways that God's made us. We have some exciting stuff we'll be doing as a church on this uh, front in the spring. But for now, I'll say, at its core, this is what discipleship is actually about. It's this invitation to remember afresh who God is, and then respond to God in a a given moment. It's making a new memory in which I see Jesus stepping in the boat with me as my life unfolds in all of its various contexts and roles and challenges and callings. And as I'm able to do that, I begin to see that the old patterns, the old ways of straining against the wind, they were insufficient anyway, and they're stilled in the presence and the promise of this person, Jesus. And when that happens, a space begins to open up within me. It's like the seed that's planted that takes root. Jeff talked about this last week. And the fruit of that seed is the ability to serve and to bless and to give and to love in a way that not only brings about wholeness in my story, but makes me a participant of that in the community and the world. If you've been around Bethany during Lent, We're reading through the book of Mark together. I hope you'll join us. Uh, It's online. The reading plan's online. There's also some bookmarks in the foyer. You can grab one of those. Um, You'll be a little behind, but that's okay. It's a very short book. It moves quickly. Um, But the reason we're doing this is not simply because scripture is good. We're doing this because this ancient book was written to be remembered into the present as our new story, both individually but also collectively as a church. The late pastor Eugene Peterson sums this idea so well. He says this, Christians don't simply learn or study or use scripture. We assimilate it. Take it into our lives in such a way that it gets mobilized into acts of love, cups of cold water, missions into all the world, healing and evangelism and justice in Jesus' name. Hands raised in adoration of the Father, feet washed in the company of the Son. So this is the call of the disciple, of the follower, to become increasingly aware of the old story and then to embrace a new memory in that space. But of course, this is much easier said than done because our old stories have so much pull. We fall back on them so effortlessly. Thankfully, Mark does offer us a hint then as to how we do this, how we make this movement In verse 52, he names that the thing standing between the disciples' old and new story is a hardened heart. It makes sense then that the key to embracing a new memory into that story has everything to do with a softened heart. As I read this part of Mark's gospel, I found myself thinking about the state of my own heart before God. 
What words would I use to describe it? Sometimes soft, but sometimes hardened by all that is difficult in the world. Sometimes defensive, other times skeptical, often overwhelmed. What is the state of your heart? We're told the disciples have a hardened heart, but they're not the only ones. In Mark chapter 3, we see this phrase again. Jesus is grieved by the Pharisees because despite being well-versed in Scripture, they also have hard hearts. They are so self-righteous in their religion and law that they miss Jesus' actual healing power on display right before them. It's wild. He heals a withered hand, and they're like, it's the wrong day of the week. It's wild stuff. See, in both instances, with the disciples and the Pharisees, and so often myself, Jesus shows up with his life-offering presence, but it isn't received. The need for it isn't realized, isn't welcome into the places of the old, broken story. And in the case of the disciples, Mark gives us a further hint when he says, this hardness of heart is connected to the fact that they didn't understand about the loaves. In other words, Mark seems to be saying, the loaves, pay attention to the loaves. I can't say that part without thinking of the movie Zoolander when they're like, it's in the computer. I'm glad you guys got that. The 930 was like, what? (laughs) Remember, right before they got in the boat, Jesus takes a mere five loaves, and with that, he feeds thousands of very hungry people. And not only does he feed them, but there is an abundance of food left over. There is something in this, Mark says, that is important, that's connected to a softened heart. Several years ago, I was part of a uh, retreat for pastors, and at the end of it, we received communion in this very kind of strange way. We were each handed, not a cracker or a small piece of bread, but actually a full-on, like, home-baked, Instagram-worthy loaf of bread, each one of us. Um, and we had some time and space just to sort of sit and reflect as we took this communion. And I remember sitting there holding it with some confusion, this loaf of bread. I'd actually missed part of the instruction, so I wasn't really sure what I was supposed to do with it. Like, am I supposed to eat it? Should I just take a little bite? I'm kind of looking around what are other people doing it. I don't want to waste food. Maybe I should sneak some in my bag, make grilled cheese later. I was confused, and there was a leader. I also am a rule follower. I'm learning that about myself. Uh, so I whispered to the leader. I said, hey, what are we supposed to do with this? And she responded, well, you're supposed to eat it. And I'm standing there holding this massive loaf of bread, and I look at it, and I look at her. I said, all of it? And I'll never forget what she said to me. She said this. She said, eat until you're full. Eat until you're full. Let me bring this together for us. The God of the universe comes to us in Jesus in the midst of our same old stories to help us remember anew. And to do that, all we need is a softened heart to receive. Instead of doubling down on our old stories with a hardened heart, we're invited to try this new thing, receiving, literally pausing and saying in a given moment, God, I need you. I'm tempted to fall back on that own story, but I receive right now the bread that you give, your very body, broken, blessed, given. And like the, the miraculous feast on the hillside that day, there is an abundance, there is a generosity to this God like nothing we've ever known. 
Sometimes I think of my apprehension to just sort of dig into that loaf of bread. And I think it could be a bit of a metaphor for my own hardness of heart. When I feel stuck in an old story of straining or performing or feeling overwhelmed or afraid or hopeless, I find myself so often in these places of sort of hesitantly like poking at that loaf of bread. Like, what's it for? What are we supposed to do with this? Do I really need it right now? Do I eat it? Do I save it for later? Will there be more once this is gone? Does it make any difference? And friends, here is the good news of the gospel. Yes. Time and time and time again, yes. When Jesus teaches his disciples to pray, what does he say to them? He says, pray from your daily bread. (laughs) Because every day God gives anew. There's more than enough. There are loaves left over. Receive with a softness of heart into your story what Christ has given you. How much? Until you're full. As we close today, I'm going to give us just a few moments to sit in silence and consider, is there a part of your story today where you need to receive the fullness of Christ? Where you're maybe living in an an old pattern, an old mindset, an old way of just straining in the world? To to think of that and then to receive into that space the fullness of Christ, to remember anew the life and the story to which we are called, to bring the whole of our lives into that story. Let's pray together as we do that. Loving Father, we just pause before you and take a moment to consider the ways where we might be entrenched in an old story. God, give us the grace and the courage and the awareness to go there, to name that, to name it without shame. God, I pray that we would be a people who trust that you are doing a new thing. That we don't have to settle for a boat stuck in the wind that's going nowhere. But that there's actually this spirit, this this Ruach spirit that you're, man, just trying to catch us up all in, catch this world up in. God, it's a spirit of generosity and creativity, of love and of justice and of goodness and of peace, of abundance. God, in those places where we just find ourselves deprived this morning. We take that bread, just even in our imaginations, and we, man, we eat it until we're full. We receive it until we're full. God, thank you that you are a God who fills empty spaces. May we be made full so that we then can be a blessing people of goodness and hope and mercy and love in this world. We pray this in Jesus' name.